Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. And I am your co-host, Faith Ryan. The 21st Century Cures Act was signed into law in 2016 after receiving wide bipartisan support to improve innovation and patient access to medical information. To support this, the Office of the National Coordinator is working to improve interoperability and limit information blocking. In the studio with us to discuss all of this, plus the importance of an app economy, is Dr. Donald Rucker, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at ONC. Don, thank you for joining us on GovCast. Thank you. You have an extensive background in science and medicine. What brought you to working in the public sector? It's interesting. There are some things you can do in the private sector, and there are some things you really have to do in the public sector. And when we look at what probably some of the biggest needs in the healthcare IT landscape, right, and I would put those as usability, burden reduction on the one hand, interoperability on the other, those are both areas where government has a unique role. And uh, it's actually certainly for interoperability, a, a global role, since we're heavily involved in setting standards that have international impact. Did you always have a passion for health? It's interesting. Sort of had to go to med school, be a doctor kind of thing. And then when I got to med school and realized the vast set of issues with the American healthcare delivery system, I realized that it would be very interesting and very good to think more expansively about how to solve these issues rather than just sort of jumping in and being, quote, unquote, a pure practitioner. So I very consciously figured out what are the tools and things you need to actually influence policy, influence product, influence the broader direction of American healthcare. So what exactly did you learn about the state of health technology during your time as an emergency physician? Well, I mean, the main thing you learn is that it doesn't really work that well, right? So when I was doing my residency, I realized that there were vast opportunities for automation, right? So I wasn't, as a resident, you're not necessarily thinking about how do I document to get a higher level CPT code, though, of course, now residents are trained that. So, but back in the early 80s, that wasn't just starting to come on the horizon, that whole documentation for billing. But there were plenty of opportunities to actually automate very, very manual, very unnecessary activities. I mean, just as an example, when I was a resident, we had all of our microbiology culture results reported non-alphabetically so that every resident who had patients in patient units had to read every culture result on every patient in the hospital because they weren't alphabetized, so you couldn't find your patients. Now, admittedly, alphabetizing doesn't actually need IT, <laughs> right? But it's that sort of almost a microcosm of the types of opportunities that I think were obvious even as a resident. Now, sadly, we haven't come anywhere near to the level of automation that I think we can in healthcare. So that is part of the opportunity for ONC to help move that along. So how does ONC, I guess, implement to get a tools and resources to manage all of the information that they have? The two big roles for ONC. So we're a funny kind of beast in the government world. We're in part a regulatory agency and part a agency that promotes 
and coordinates, hence the name National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. So on the one hand, we have a rule writing function. So Congress and President Obama signed that in 2016, the 21st Century Cures Act, the White House, President Trump, Secretary Azar are very, very much aligned with that mission and vision in terms of interoperability, putting the patients back in charge of their health care. You've heard that consistently. So part of our mission is doing the the rule writing and then the certification of the healthcare IT to actually allow those things to happen for consumers, right? So you, you as a consumer have apps that can actually do this. The second part is a more developmental set of work that we do a lot of work on, on developing and helping develop standards. These are consensus standards. So we don't write them, but we help facilitate and coordinate those. And that standards part is again also central to this modern highway. There's a, a great historical analogy to what the government had to do with the transcontinental railroad to set a national gauge for railroads. Right, because each railroad had a different width of the tracks. Formerly, the government, as I understand, I obviously wasn't there in, in the 1860s, but it was put into the law that funded the Transcontinental Railroad. And then, interesting enough, the South, they had a different gauge. And then about 20 years later, they literally, over the course of a very short period of time, switched the gauge on all of their rails, all of their tracks, coordinated. So these are the types of things where you need some type of a coordination function. So standards work, and then the rulemaking to facilitate the patients getting control of their data. Those are two big activities. What are some of the challenges associated with those efforts? Oh, well, that's a long list. Uh, how long do we have? Well, let me, let me, I think, a couple highlights that I think will resonate for your audience. So as we think about standards, right, I think every CIO or IT professional in the government or outside of the government has to think about what are the IT standards that are working, right? Now, some of this is just built in these days, right? 120 volts out of the wall socket, internet protocol. But certainly in any business, you have to figure out if we're going to share data, what what standards do we use? So the challenge there is there's a lot of stuff going on in healthcare. And because of the history of it, we've separated out the financial, the payment standards from the clinical standards. So they are in totally different trajectories, totally different application software, totally different workflows. So as a country, when we're trying to figure out how do you pay for value, we have literally separated the price and the product at its core. Could you imagine online shopping, not knowing either one or the other of those, right? Yeah, you can look at whatever you want online, but they won't tell you what the price is. You don't know till you order it and it comes to your door and then there's a charge, right? Or conversely, there's just a list of prices with some kind of code, but you didn't know what the code was for, right? That's where we are in healthcare. Huge challenge there to get the clinical data, the financial data together. And that's on the standard side. On the rule making side. Obviously, this is a, is a new way for people to think. I think every business is looking at what does the internet mean? How do we put information out for the public, for our constituents? I think every agency, every company has those issues. What 
the Cures Act requires of ONC, of course, is not just for an agency, but it's really for the entire country. How do we rethink healthcare in a modern internet type of way, a modern app economy type of way? As you might imagine, that's extraordinarily disruptive. The 20% of the economy where people are used to a whole series of government roles and modes of doing business that really don't change that rapidly because it's isolated from the rest of the economy. So all of a sudden, now you have to start thinking about competition with apps, new ways of getting information, transparency, right? People can actually understand what you're charging. And as you know, the American public, we're not, as members of the public, we're not really happy with the deal we're getting, to say the least. And so all of a sudden, this modern technology is colliding with more existential forces like competition, transparency, and with IT, a much higher level of accountability than I think we've had over the last 20 years with very hand-picked accountability measures called quality measures. So it's a, just a much richer set of things to ponder. So do you think that patients weren't being fully empowered before the 21st Century Cures Act was passed? I think it's worth thinking in a market economy, you're empowered in part by your wallet, your pocketbook, right? So if there are things you want, you decide, can I afford it? Do I want it? Do I pay for it? In the United States, for a variety of reasons, but most notably, starting with Medicare, we've had third parties set the prices, right? So the normal economic transaction in a market is consumers and producers are in equilibrium around what's called a marginal price, right? So that is how markets empower consumers. It's very fundamental. In healthcare, we've taken that away. So we don't have market prices and the purchases are made by third parties. So we're highly unempowered and but what's happened is because of the rise in costs now as all of this is funneled back on the public through high deductibles which pretty much most employers are being forced to do we're increasingly now going back to paying more and more of it but we still don't have the tools those tools were taken away in 1965 in essence and so now we're being forced to shop without the tools cures and what we're trying to do in the administration is get those tools back so as people have the high deductible plans and as employers are unable to bear the expenses and country at large that we now have modern tools to do it because you need the app economy that kind of consumer convenience these days. So you also led the team that designed a computerized provider order entry workflow. Would you say you were part of an initial tech boom in the health IT industry, speaking of technology changes? Well, yes. I mean, some of that, I think, had had a longer gestation. But I actually, when I decided during residency to go back to computer, or not to go back to, well, to go back to school, but to formally study computer science, which is a bit of a daunting thing when you're 30 years old and have medical student loans and maybe an expectation that you would like get a job to go back to school from residency is a little bit odd. 
in Stanford's medical computer science program in the Stanford AI lab. So this was right after the bloom had come off the first wave of artificial intelligence hype in the 80s. So that probably blossomed literally very, very late 70s, early 80s. It was cooling down mid-80s, but it was still around. And so now, having seen the second AI wave of enthusiasm, and, you know, of course, the web boom in 1999 was sort of somewhere on the path there. It's very interesting to compare the first and the second AI cycles. What's different now, we actually had the algorithms in the 1980s. I mean, we sort of knew the basics of neural nets on some level was early rule-based expert systems. What we didn't have were computers with enough power to actually do any real calculation. We didn't have networks to move any data, and we didn't have electronic data, right? And so now we have all of those things. And so that's what I think makes this very, very different, is that we actually now have all of the components that we honestly could dream about back in the 80s. You know, when I was an undergraduate, the Stanford University Network in Stanford, I obviously had a great state-of-the-art computer science network. That network was so slow that when the big undergraduate homeworks were due, each keystroke had a latency on the network because having 100 students or 200 students typing away on a word processor on a terminal was enough to basically sync network performance Right. And this is all character based. Mind you, there were no visuals. There was no YouTube. There were no videos. This was green screen. So the kind of stuff that you trivially get on your smartphone by yourself, those even smaller data loads would sync the entire network just to give you a flavor in the audience, a flavor of how far we've come on this. So I think it's an exciting time. I mean, we're seeing that in our lives. So where do you see the next wave of AI? I think in healthcare, often we see AI as replacing diagnosis because that is sort of the, the sexy, the sizzle part of it. I think a lot of this is actually going to be a much simpler process, as you know, automating things around supply chain, watching out for adverse events on nursing units, assisting maybe with documentation, surveillance of abnormal lab results. I think things that are much simpler than that sort of goal of replacing the doctor. And I don't say that just because I'm a doctor and don't want to be replaced. And I'm just saying that because I think you want to match the tool to the task. And when you look at the tools we have out there, those are the kinds of tasks that I think they're good at. When, you know, and again, we're talking now about machine learning tools, which are not that different than a lot of the classic statistical tools are just in a much higher dimensional space. And then some of the early neural network tools, which are really pattern recognition tools. You know, when you look at what could those kinds of tools innately do, that's where I think they shine. And that's where they're largely used in other sectors of the economy. So tell me a little more about you developing the world's first Windows-based EMR. I mean, this has been known since, I think, honestly, the 50s or 60s, that it would be nice if computers helped with medical records. 
Right. So that's been known. There were some very, very early projects there. None of them worked. Maybe the most famous one was a project with at Massachusetts General Hospital with uh, Bob Berenick and Newman. You know, does a lot of IT consulting then as now, I believe. Just didn't have the network speed. It just didn't work when you had had to do it. But that led to, for example, the programming language MUMPS. Some of the legacy systems today are still based on that early work. Those systems came decades later. So we knew in the 60s, 70s, 80s that electronic records should be would be a good thing in healthcare. I mean, you can't but look at a file room with paper records and realize there's something missing here. The problem is how to go about it and how to make it usable. Folks were starting to think about it. I joined a company as employee number six, a company called Datamatic, founded by a gentleman named Paul Gertman, who had made money in some data analytics, interestingly enough. And so we went at building literally the first EMR in Windows. Now you ask what the problems were. So this was for the few members of your audience, remember who knew what Windows 2.1 was? I have no idea. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> right, because you were born 20 years later after Windows 2.1. So PCs back then had come out a couple years earlier, but the Intel chips at the time, they didn't anticipate what they were really going to be used for. And so you couldn't manage memory, which is a pretty fundamental thing. So every user of PCs of that era typically had to buy extra memory boards, insert chips, and then the software, the Intel assembly language, didn't readily handle that little bit of extra memory. So we're talking tiny, tiny amounts of memory, right? The very first hard drives were a meg. And this was before hard drives. There's a whole history of hard drives. But the first PC hard drives were roughly um, that size. And so you had, you know, 180K floppies, right? So a tiny bit of the picture you took on your iPhone. That was the extent of it. So memory management was huge. And we were also the first people to ever use Dragon speech recognition in, um, in healthcare. There was a co- competitor company that was in DOS using the Kurzweil speech product. So it was Kurzweil, actually. They were in DOS. So we were literally the first Windows uppercase, Microsoft Windows, and the first Windows lowercase to do an EMR. It was very brittle software. It was hard to get through a demo without it crashing. But we pioneered a lot of, a lot of things. It was a very interesting time. And, uh, you know, ultimately... For a variety of probably self-inflicted reasons, the company didn't succeed, but I, I think we were very, very close and we had quite a, quite a few users doing integrated speech, um, text and template with the templates all dynamically created, which, um, isn't even the case today on the mainstream systems. The templates today are essentially static creations. Can you uh, elaborate more on this idea of an app economy? An app economy is really, well, tautologically, it's an economy driven by apps, right? That That uh, is not informational. So what the app economy is, in the past, we've had all kinds of middlemen to do many of our tasks. So 
if you wanted to go somewhere, you would go to a travel agent would be a classic example. Or if you wanted to listen to music, you would go to a record store. Maybe you could buy a DVD eventually. Um, if you wanted to get money, like if you still, you know, back in the days when you had to pay cash for stuff, you would have to go to a bank and a bank teller would get to you, right? We have increasingly disintermediated all of those things, all of those services, so that we interact directly with the endpoint, whether that's the airline, the bank, not as a teller, but the bank as a, as a database, and the app economy, but somehow you have to interact if, if it's software. Somewhere that software has to exist in order for that interaction to happen. Over the last 15, 20 years, a lot of that software existed as web apps. So go to a browser and do it. Now those apps and tasks are increasingly moving to smartphones because they're just more convenient. And so the app economy is how do you build what is our version of middlemen? And it literally is. So how do you build that? And then in healthcare, what does that even mean? What does that look like? What, you know, the middlemen today are, you know, doctors, hospitals, a thousand, you go to a town like Nashville, Tennessee, there's hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of companies doing middlemen, you know, whether it's analyzing claims or some part of supply chain or PBMs, I mean, PBMs, you know, pharmacy benefit managers are the absolute classic middlemen, right? So they have a, essentially, as we know, an opaque business model where we don't really know what they charge, what they pay for the prices of drugs. They charge us something that is sort of hidden then in the insurance cost, they're the absolute sort of classic middlemen. So you don't really know, for the most part, they have these artificial co-pays, but you don't know what the drug is. And often what you're paying is vastly more than what you would pay in a free market, right? If you have some generic med, something like hydrochlorothiazide that's been around since the dawn of time, you're probably paying 10, 20, 30 times per pill what you would if it were in a market economy and you could just buy it the way you buy, you know, 500 aspirins at, at a drugstore. So the app economy is how does software and the competition of a market and software, how does that get transparency into healthcare and eliminate all of these non-transparent and, you know, labor-intensive and expensive processes? So that's the heart of the app economy. In order to do that, you have to be allowed to get at your medical record, right? What's the core thing here? It's not the technology. Technology exists. The core thing here is for you to have a legal and an operational practical right to get at your medical records so that you can then shop. That's what Cures is about. So in regards to HIPAA, how does that play into ONC's policies? Yeah. So HIPAA is, is a law that was passed about 25 years ago now on it was originally meant for health insurance portability. It really is known as the privacy law. And most of it has really been transactional privacy between the folks who are providing health care and the folks who are paying for it. So what are um, called covered entities and business associates. So these are hospitals, doctors, payers. There is a provision under HIPAA, though, 
uh, guaranteeing the patient an individual right of access. Now, historically, you've had to go to medical records and quite quite a complicated issue, but with modern technology, working with the Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights, so Roger Severino's group, they have defined an electronic right of access, and that's what we're really implementing so that you can get your data on your smartphone and get it in a consumer-friendly way. So this is something, you know, we haven't had the tools to do in the past. The best in recent years we've had are, are the ONC meaningful use certification requirements that have required, along with CMS, providers to stand up a portal. So you can go to the web on your web browser and look it up. But now we're saying, what's the next step here under the right of access? And that's getting it on your smartphone. And for patients, at no cost. So Congress has said, this is part of the provision of medical care. Now, other APIs may have all kinds of costs and economics associated with them, but for patients, it is available. So this is a single API, and then uh, users are able to access their EHRs from their smartphones. But in relation to the app economy, are there going to be multiple third-party apps that we hope so. This. I've been told, I haven't personally counted, but I've been told there are several hundred thousand healthcare apps in the two big app stores. Almost none of them actually get a hold of your medical record, right? So these are health apps that don't have your medical data, right? So maybe it's the, the Fitbit or data you enter. Maybe there's a couple companies, Omada, Lavongo, that are doing, for example, custom diabetes where they're putting in some medical data. In general, you don't have access to, you know, your problem list, your med list, your allergies. What we're saying is, wouldn't that app economy be much more effective if you could put in your medical issues? Now, I know when you're young, don't have maybe any or very few medical issues, not an issue. As you get older, things pile up. Many people are on more meds than they can remember, literally, or like your lab results. So to have all of that available, it's going to be very, very powerful. And that's what the uh, end state is here. So what would you tell people who are skeptical of having their data given to third-party apps? Yeah. Well, under our rule, the first thing you have to understand that's absolutely central is, and the right of access, you're the only one who decides whether your personal identifiable medical data goes anywhere because you have to authenticate. So the app doesn't just crawl around looking for medical data. You have to authenticate yourself at your provider's portal and say, I want this app to get my data or some set of the data. So it is a, unlike today, where under some of the current HIPAA authorization, treatment payment operations, data may be floating around in that whole payment world. Here, under the ONC API rule, you absolutely have the right to decide if any app gets your data. If you decide, hey, don't believe in it, concerned about it, don't want to do it, you absolutely don't have to Bring an app to a portal and life goes on as it is. So that is a hundred percent under your choice where I think there's interest is, okay, you've brought an app. How do we make sure that the apps that you have chosen, in fact, 
do the right thing with your data once you have chosen them, right? What's called um, secondary use of data. We're putting in some protections there. There's a lot of interest in Capitol Hill. And of course, it's really not just about the medical data. It's about all data, right? So the GDPR rule in Europe, the California Consumer Privacy Act, a lot of work, a lot of interest in that. And, you know, medical data is aware everywhere. I saw that uh, Google published some information on people searching for drug addiction rehab programs, right? So that has nothing to do with HIPAA, healthcare. That's just a Google search. Your GPS location data on your phone says all kinds of stuff about your health, right? You're going to the HIV or the STD clinic, or maybe you're just hanging out at the neighborhood bar, or, you know, maybe you're hanging out at the neighborhood ice cream store. See, you're going to the ice cream store every evening. (laughs) Hmm. Maybe that's not the person I want to write insurance to, right? So there is... Most health data, I I think you can argue these days, is not held by doctors or hospitals or within HIPAA. It is the the behavior, it is data and the behavior patterns that you've exposed by your use of technology or potentially can be discovered algorithmically through your use of technology. Well, what is next for you? Where do you see your role taking you? Seriously, I think there's a lot of work to be done on interoperability. We're moving healthcare to these new FHIR standards, F-H-I-R, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. For for the audience, those are the FHIR version of the RESTful and JSON standards that you see in the rest of the economy. FHIR is built on top of JSON. So that's still early, a lot of work going on there, the whole work on building out the rulemaking around the APIs, making that operational for consumers, lots and lots of things to do there. So those are the main, that'll keep me and probably the next two national coordinators quite busy. Well, thank you, Don, for joining us. This was oh, a great conversation. And I'm sure Faith learned so much more. I did. About <laughs> the world. <laughs> yes, all right. Amy, Faith, thank you very much. <laughs> GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced and hosted by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.